So one of the uh, fun things for me, since I have a microphone and get to stand in front of you so often, is I get to work out all my stuff on stage, and you're welcome. Um, so I've mentioned a couple of times over the last year, my grandmother passed away about a year ago, and it has been surprisingly impactful on my life. I've lost uh, grandparents and family members over the years, and it's been a pretty normal but a big part of my life as well. But for some reason, this grandmother uh, has spurred a lot of thoughts. It may be because it was my last grandmother. It also is probably because I spent so much time with this set of grandparents. And, and not all of it has been this like deep sadness. It's not been all that. A lot of it has been reminiscing and remembering some of the good and amazing things that happened because they were just a huge part of my life. Um, I remember being at Disney a few months ago, and I don't know about you, but sometimes memories come and go for me. Like there are parts of my life that are crystal clear and I can remember exactly what's going on. And there's parts of my memory that sort of go and they come back up during times, maybe things that are just sort of, you don't have time to think about all of it. And then when something happens, it, it hits. And we were at Disney a few months ago and I remember walking on Thunder Mountain Railroad and I distinctly remember my grandmother taking me and uh, this little uh, boy that they had, uh, friends of theirs from Mexico who were in town, like we all got to go together. And, and I remember my grandmother taking me on Thunder Mountain for the first time. Now she didn't ride Thunder Mountain. She just walked me to the front of Thunder Mountain, but we won't get into that. Um, but it's just like all those memories came up. But the biggest part of what has kind of hit me, um, my grandparents had a lake house up in North Georgia, up in uh, Raven County, if any of y'all have ever been there. They had this incredible house on Lake Burton. Uh, they bought it back in the 70s. It was like this little fishing shack and burned down and they built like a really nice little house on there and it had a dock and, and, and it was on the lake. And I mean, I spent so much time there. My parents were teachers. Uh, we would be able to spend something. It's a whole summer up there together with him. I remember when my, my sister was born, she was several years younger. My parents sent me up there for a month or two to be with them. And my, my grandparents were just very involved. She taught, my grandmother taught me how to fish. There were just so many important parts of my life. But that place, Lake Burton, that house, that city was a huge part of my life. And when I think about it, sometimes I sort of lose my breath because it was such a special place. I don't know if you have any place in your life like that, when you think about it, you're just there. You're so present. And like sometimes you almost lose your breath because it's like your favorite place in the world. Um, and, and recently I was, I was reading a book that was set there. Someone had told me about this book that was there and I was reading it and I, and I, was, and I was not bawling like a baby. I, I was crying respectfully like a grown man uh, through most of it. And, um, but I was like, it just... I mean, the, the book was set not just even on the lake. It's a huge lake, but across the little finger of the lake that my grandparents lived on. It was bringing back all of these memories and all this stuff. But one of the memories that brought back was actually a fairly surprising one because within, you know, an hour drive, there's all the fun stuff in the mountains. There was sliding rock and all these other places. But there was one place that we used to go as a family called Falling Waters. It was sort of, you know, a stream with rapids and rocks you could jump off of and swim. And it was really fun. And I remember we were there one day and it just, this is one of those memories that had gone away and just sort of came back in the midst of all this. And we were jumping off this rock and it was super fun. And, and if any of y'all have ever been rafting or are familiar with rapids, you know that it takes a couple of things. It takes some altitude change, right, for the water to move fast, but also like rocks are a big part of what makes rapids happen. And on one side of the rock, it makes it really fun and there's like stuff going on. But oftentimes on the back side of the rock, it creates like a plunging pool or a vacuum of sorts. And if you're ever rafting, they just tell you to hold on to your life vest. They'll throw a rope to you. They'll get you out. You'll kind of bob for a while. Uh, it might be fun. Um, not so much fun when you're like four or five years old and you get sucked to the bottom. So I had this memory of jumping off the rock and not coming back up. And as I was thinking about it, I just remember like trying to get out of it and my feet are stuck to the bottom and I'm looking up and I can see light, sort of like those, um, but in water and I'm not moving. And I remember the very distinct feeling of losing my breath, right? And some of you are like, oh, don't talk about this anymore because I've been there, right? And, and, and just like feeling like I am not 
going to be able to take it and I can't do anything about it, I'm stuck. And I just remember my dad reaching his arm in and pulling me out and rescuing me. Now, the water was probably four feet deep. I was a little guy at the time, but that was like, that was probably one of the most intense experiences I've ever had of like suffocating, of being under the weight of the water, of just not being able to breathe and not being able to do anything. Probably the closest thing that I've experienced to that kind of feeling in, in, in my adult life was what it was like to be in financial debt so deep that I didn't know how I was gonna make the next day. That, that feeling of suffocating under the weight of like, I don't know if the bill collector shows up tomorrow, what, what's going to happen? And some of you have been there. And, and I know when I talk about that feeling, the feeling that you can't rescue yourself, the feeling of suffocating, of being underwater, it is a very real thing. Because some of you have experienced that, whether it's a physical part of being underwater or tossed upside down, and maybe it's in your life. And for some of you, you're experiencing it on a daily basis. You're in a place where you're underwater and you're suffocating and you can't get yourself out. And for some of you that might be in your marriage, maybe you're in a place right now where it's just really hard and you don't know what tomorrow brings and you're fighting through it and you're trying to figure it out and you just don't know how to take the next step. Maybe for some of you guys, it's in your family, it's a sibling or a parent and you're just not sure how to navigate that relationship, but it's always there. They're for your family and you're in the midst of all of it. For some of you, it might actually be jail or prison. Maybe that's part of your story or maybe something that you're going through and the actual idea of being closed in, of being confined in that way is a very real part of it. I would guess for many of us, it's addictions. There are those things that have caught up with us over time that are holding you back, those things that are holding you down and that you can't get out of and you don't know how to take a next step out of. And we know that feeling, so many of us, of what it's like to not be able to get out of, not being able to take the next step, of not being able to pull ourselves out of it. You know, the feeling of being stuck. And some of you are suffocating under the weight of something and you don't even know it. And that was one of those things I was thinking about this week. We can be moving through our life in such a way and performing in such a way, and maybe we're just achieving on such a high level that we are suffocating under the weight of the pressure of performance or the weight of an addiction, and we don't even know it. The people around us most likely do, and maybe they've tried to point it out over time, but you can't hear it because things are moving on really well, or maybe you haven't had enough time to slow down and look in the mirror and to realize things are not as they seem on the inside. And for many of us, you're on the other side of this, and you know what it's like to be free, and that's where we join Paul today and the Galatians and the scripture today. Paul, you see, he wants us to know that he was suffocating under the weight of the law and he found freedom. He was suffocating under the weight of this life that had been built up and he found freedom and he wanted us in the early church to know what the hope was that was there. See, Paul, not too long before writing this book, this letter to the church in Galatia here, he had been out following the law, following the rules. He had been out murdering Christians, murdering and shutting down and suppressing this movement of new people that had been following the risen Christ. And in his day job and in what he was set out to do, he was very successful. He was one of the best at it. He was a, a, one of the people most respected in what he was doing until one day, as he's walking down the road, a light appears and a voice from the heavens comes to him and pulls him out and makes him realize he has been suffocating and dying under the weight of this thing that he had no idea because on the outside, it looked like he was achieving and doing the right things. Yet inside, he was in such turmoil and he found freedom and he experienced freedom and he knew what the hope of Jesus was and he wanted to make sure the church knew exactly what the hope of freedom was. He didn't want them to have any confusion about what was going on. He wanted them to be so clear of what the hope of Christ was that 2,000 years later that we could be sitting here today and know that same hope. 
He wanted us to know the good news and the hope of rescue. And he wanted to make sure that this early church fully understood it so that they could pass it on and so that we would also be able to do the same thing because I think the reason he wrote this letter is I've been reading it more and more and looking at it. He knew how close to the edge this early church was. Again, very early on in the movement, but they were already starting to go back into the old ways. They had heard about the freedom in Christ. They had heard about Jesus. Some of them had seen him die and come back to life and they had experienced the freedom of grace. They had been released from the power of this law that had been over them and they had experienced this new life, but already they were starting to put a layer back on top of it. They're already starting to say, yes, that's great that you have freedom and it's so great that we believe in Jesus, but also we need to eat certain things and you need to have this physical mark of circumcision. It would be maybe in our context saying, all right, that's great. You've accepted Christ. You've prayed the prayer. Now, once you go ahead, you need to make sure you get a tattoo right on your wrist and it's gotta be a certain tattoo so everybody knows that it's it. And if you don't have that, well, it's not really the real thing. And I know it sounds a little ridiculous, but that's kind of what was happening. But the insidious part of it is that it goes beyond. It starts with maybe a mark of a thing, but then you pile on a couple more laws, you pile on a couple more things, and all of a sudden, it's a very dim view of what the hope was really there. It's, it's, it's like looking through a, gl- a glass foggily where you can't quite see what's really there, and that would be what happened to this incredible message of hope that Jesus came to do. But I also think the reason he wrote it is that when we talk about the Bible being divinely inspired, God is working within Paul. As he's writing this letter to the church of what he's understood, there's also a part of this letter that's written for you and I for 2,000 years later that it would be applicable to our life. So as God is kind of stirring it up and in his heart, he knows, he knows us. Let's make no mistake, God knows you and I, and he knows how quick we are to leave freedom and go back to the old ways. He knows how quick we are to try to do things on our own. He knows we're wired up to try to do this without him. He knows that once we're free, it's so easy to walk back into it. He knows that when you're, maybe you're taking a medicine and it's something you're supposed to take for a long time. Maybe it's for mental health and maybe it's for another condition, but all of a sudden you start feeling better. So you stop taking it, right? Because, well, I'm fine. I don't need to take this anymore then all of a sudden it comes back. Or maybe maybe it's the addiction and you're finally free of it for a while, but like, I can just do it. I can just do it every now and again. It's not gonna hurt if I, I've got control of it now, right? And we know how quick we are to go back to the old ways and think I can do it. In the same way he sees what's happening with the gospel and that they're gonna go back to this old way. So we're gonna be looking today in Galatians chapter three, verses 23 through chapter four, verse seven. And I invite you to follow along. It's in your bulletins. Um, If you wanna pause your Bibles or on your phones, Galatians chapter three, verses 23 through chapter four, verse seven. Paul says, before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized in the Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had finally come, God sent his son, born of a woman, 
born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God set the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. I found it very helpful last week, if you were here, when Chad was sharing uh, the scripture before this, kind of defining some of the terms that are there about the covenant made with Abraham, this beautiful promise that God made. And I think one of the terms that will be helpful to understand a little bit today is the law. The law is referred to a lot in Galatians. And some of you are very astute in it and you know exactly what that is. But for the rest of us, uh, the law was this beautiful thing passed down by God. God had set a people apart. He had set the nation of Israel apart. This was his showcase people. These were the people that were supposed to be so fully devoted to God that their acts of worship, that their life would be so welcoming and so lovely that the whole world would look in and want to follow this same God. So he set them apart and he said, as I'm setting you apart, let me give you some structure to this new world. See, they just walked away from slavery. They had just left Egypt. They were this new nation. They're coming into this new land. And so he lovingly gave them the law. And the law was three parts. And the first part is probably the part we're most familiar with. And that's the moral law or the 10 commandments. And this part of the law governed the moral life, giving guidance to Israel and principles of right and wrong in relation to God and man. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not have any gods before me. Very helpful ways of living out. Exodus 20, verses one through 17, you can find this original law. And this was the moral law. This is the way to live, the way to treat others. And this was kind of the internally wired law. It's beautiful and still is one of those things when you think God is so loving that he gave them this way to live that would be so amazing. And then there was a second part of the law that he gave them. This was the judgments or the social law. And this part of the law governed Israel and her secular, social, political, and economic life. So this is found in Exodus 21 uh, and throughout the part of it here in the next 20 or so verses. What's so incredible is this new nation was being put together. They needed a way to govern and rule. And God lovingly gave them this structure, this framework that if you were to follow this, life will work. I'm gonna give you a way to live that helps you in your health, that helps you in your relationships, that gives you a way to be reconciled with one another. So he set up a way, a way of governance because this is a new nation, this is a new people and they need structure. And so God gives them this. And then in the third part, there were the ordinances or the ceremonial law. And this was the religious portion of the law, which guided and provided for Israel and her worship and spiritual relationship and fellowship with God. And that included the priesthood, tabernacle, and sacrifices. This is found in Exodus 25, as well as in Leviticus. And these were the ways that they could be made right with God. These were the ways their spiritual life around him were to be ordered. In all, there were 613 laws that needed to be followed. Thanks, Chad, for Googling that for me. I appreciate it. Um, and it was useful for the time. I mean, again, God lovingly gave this structure for them to be able to live, to be able to love, to be able to function as a society and as a people set for him. But here's the thing, it was God's law. God made it, God gave it to them, and it was always to be God's law to be lived out. God was to remain God, and the law was there to help point to him because it was impossible to keep all of it. It was to help people return back then. The law was always set up as a way to remind them like, this is the way you should live. You're going to fall short. Here are the ways to come back to me. It was a cycle. Being able to continually point back to him, to be able to be made right in relationship with God. Again, given by a loving God to people to be able to point to him. But what happened over time is the law ends up superseding God on many occasions. 
And the law started to become an end to itself. When God set it up, the law was a means to an end. It was a means to have a healthy society. It was a means to be in proper relationship with him, to love one another, to care for the world, to forgive debts, to do all of these amazing things. But the law became this end to itself. It became a way to claw yourself to God. It became a way to stair step it up there, to be able to do it all on our own. And eventually what happened is the law became such the focus instead of the means to God, it became the way to live. And it eventually just let people be their own gods. It let them say, well, if I just do all of these things, I don't actually need God. I just need to do the right things. And then I can kind of do it myself, which is pretty attractive to a lot of us. If we're honest, right? Wouldn't it be nice to just have a checklist of the seven or 613 things we need to do? And if we just did these things, 613 is probably a lot less than the laws we have around us right now. Um, but if we just had a list of all of these things, and if I could just check off the list, I don't need to worry about God. I can just, I can just take care of it. And I know that I'm right. That's how we're still wired, isn't it? I mean, in our society, especially here in the West, in the United States, that is such an image of what we want, the self-made man, right? I still think about this statue. Um, I've talked about it before, but you can see it down in Winter Park. Um, and, and it's a man chiseling himself out of stone, the self-made man. Like this is the image that we hold up as one of the highest values in our society, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, the Western man who goes out and conquers the frontier. And, and even now we, we kind of glorify this idea of I did it on my own. I achieved it on my own. We celebrated Chad last week um, was talking about the Enneagrams. Many of us are into that or have to because our spouses are. And um, she's not here, so I can say it. Um, but Chad said that uh, the United States is a three on the Enneagram, which is the achiever, the one who wants to have everything looking like they have it in order, that wants to be praised for the ways that we achieve. But the problem with that, the problem with letting the law be that thing, the letting it be God instead of letting God be God and trying to achieve and trying to do this on our own is it leads to what our students are saying across the country. I, I, if you had a chance to see that, if not, I, I, we can show it to you, but statements our students made from Florida to, to Spokane, Washington, of the pressure that they're living under. Things that they said like, I need to be perfect or at least appear to be, or I'm only worth what I achieve. These are 14 year olds that we've taught. This is the way to live. And most of us are still living it in our day-to-day -day life. So Paul wanted them to understand, if you go back to the law, if you do anything but understand God's grace and his work for you, if you start to put this layer back on, it's not gonna lead to a good place. At, at best, at best, it's gonna lead you to confinement and to prison, at worst, to death. And he wants it to be so clear and he wants the imagery to be so stark that he talks about it like this. He says that under the law, that we're held in custody, so under the law, we have this picture and he starts painting the picture of what it's like to live under the law. And the first thing he says, it is to be held in custody. He starts to use prison terms, to be locked up. That if we put this layer back on top of God's work, if we try to do it on our own, that we'll be in custody and locked up. He uses again, he says locked up. Again, prison terms, being confined, being held in, to not have freedom anymore. He then goes on to say that we have to live under a guardian that we're not able to do it on our own, that part of the law was this way to hold back because we were not yet ready to live on our own. We needed someone to tell us how to live. And in fact, he says that we are underage. He gives this image that under the law, if we could put this layer back on, that we are to live as those who are not yet ready to live, that we're underage, that we need that people above us. And then he gets into this really stark imagery. He says that we're no different than a slave. I mean, this is not the life 
that people want to live. And I think when we see those words, when we hear those pulled out, the scripture, this is not what we hoped for, but yet this is what the early church was starting to walk back into. It says that we're subject to guardians and trustees. Again, this idea of being subject to other people that we cannot have our own life and freedom. And then he wants to make sure, in case you didn't get it, in case you didn't understand being locked up and underage and no different than he saves, he says, you were slaves under the law. Your freedom has been removed. You have no agency or choice. This is what happens when you get away from the gospel, when you get away from the work that only God can do. So he paints a stark picture for them to understand what they're going to get into if they start going down this way. And it's the same picture for us. If we try to do anything but let God be God and on a rescue mission for us, if we do anything but accept this idea of radical grace that strives us to live better lives, that, that changes us so entirely inside, this is what we head towards. But God, being God, saw the problem and he knew that this path would lead to continual death and separation and he provided a way out because Jesus came to fulfill the law and to allow us to live freedom with his grace. So remember the image, locked up, slaves, all of these things. Here's what he says in contrast. He says, in Christ Jesus, we are children of God. I mean, right out of the gate, one of the most beautiful images, God, Father, us, children, a God who's protecting and loving and providing and us being his children under his care. And that's just the first of about 10 things. It just keeps getting better. He says that we are clothed in Christ, that when we become followers of him, that we actually put on the image of Christ, that we almost put on this Jesus jacket, that every time that God looks at us, he sees his son, his son he loves, his son who's been with him throughout all of time. He, that's who he sees in the midst of our mess, in the midst of our mistakes, in the midst of everything we do, he sees his own son when he looks at us and it keeps getting better. He says, there's no division anymore, that you're no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer racial, ethnic, cultural lines that separate you from one another. You are no longer slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So early on, he was breaking down the lines that divide and he's saying, no, under Christ, there is a new citizenship. Again, Galatians talks about being a citizen in God's kingdom. And this is one of the marks is that the divisions are removed and we're able to be together. He then goes on to say, we are Abraham's seed. Last week, uh, Chad talked about this covenant that God made with Abraham. It was a covenant that only God could make and only God can keep. And a covenant being a promise. The promise was eternal life. The promise was freedom. The promise was life eternal and grace and, and all of these amazing things. And God made the covenant with Abraham. And he says here that we are recipients of that if we are followers of him. And then he goes on to say that we are heirs. And he gives this beautiful picture that we are full heirs. If any of you have ever been involved in probate court or have received an inheritance of some sort, you, or maybe you have written your will because you're flying to Africa with your wife and need to figure out what happens if your plane goes down and you're wiring up for your kids. That was a stark and interesting day or three that I've done. Um, but when you take 100% of your property and you start saying, well, uh, 10% goes here and 10% goes to the church and 20% goes to this person and this goes to here, right? You divide up and at the end of the day, there's 100% and each person who gets a part of it gets a fraction of the percentage because there's no way to give everybody the full amount because it has to be divided up. But God's economy is so radically different. God says, no, no, no. I'm not gonna take my property and say, well, there's a million of you. You get one one millionth of my inheritance. He says, no, you, each and every one of you are a 100% recipient of my kingdom. Each and every one of you gets the full amount. 
it doesn't add up, right? How can everybody have 100%? But that's what's so magnanimous and so what's so beautiful about God's kingdom. That's what Paul wants them to understand. This is all of these things are so much bigger than any of us really have a chance to wrap our head around that he wants the early church to just get a taste of it to pass it on, that each of us can be full heirs. And what do we get? What does it mean to be a full heir? What is the inheritance that we receive? What does it mean to be part of Abraham's seed? Eternal life. Life forever in perfect relationship with God and with each other. Freedom, joy, the ability to love without limits, both in this life and the next. It's an incredible promise of what he offers each and every one of us. It keeps getting better. He says, we're adopted to sonship. In fact, says we are sons. This has been an interesting thing. This is a very legal term at the time. He's not saying that, that we're not sons and daughters, but he may, wants to make very clear that in that time, sons were the ones, and the eldest sons got the full inheritance. They were the ones that the land was passed to, that all of it was passed to. And he wants to make clear that every single person, male or female, black or white, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, every single person now is my son, gets the full inheritance. And he wants it to be so clear. He keeps saying it over and over and over again. And Paul, throughout Galatians, says the same thing over and over and over and over again. Can you hear it? You are mine. You get it all, every bit of it. And then he goes on to say that the spirit of his son moves into our hearts. And this has been one of those things that has really uh, stuck with me over the last couple of weeks as I've thought about this. The idea that Jesus, we spent a year looking at Jesus last year and, and, and his son, his closest relationship, God, Jesus, the spirit, three in one, his closest person moves into our hearts and the spirit is there. And it says that the spirit calls out Abba, Father, and Abba is this tender, tender word. And probably the closest translation we get to it now would be daddy. That we have the ability to call God daddy. Now, so many of us can't even call our own dads that because of how messed up our images of dads are and the things that have been done or have done to us. Like, but he says, no, I, I, I'm rewiring all of this. You need to understand I am the dad that's always been promised to you. And though I am the God of the universe and it's the God of the Old Testament, it's the God of the floods, it's the same God who has the power of creation, the God who can do all of it. He says, no, you, you get to call me daddy. And not only do you get to call me daddy, I delight when you say it. One of my favorite and least favorite things in the world is when my kids come in at about 6, 6.30 in the morning. Uh, so that's the least favorite part. The favorite part though, is that all they wanna do is say daddy and snuggle up next to me, right? And it brings me such joy once I get past the door slamming open and waking me up. Um, but I love it, right? I love those tender little moments, daddy. There's something about when you hear daddy, it just melts your heart and you're just right there. And I think about that's what God feels when the spirit of his son living inside of us says, Abba, daddy. God is moved by what's happening in our lives. And then he continues on. He says, we are no longer a slave and that we are God's child. This this is the image of what happens when we're in Christ Jesus, when we fully embrace the truth and the freedom of his gospel, the good news that God did the work and invites us into it. When we don't try to add the layer of the law, this old thing that was there, this, this is what he wants for us. I, um, I grew up in church. I, I went with my mom. My dad didn't go to church when I was younger. And so we would go to church and I loved it, right? It, I felt close to God. But about sixth or seventh grade, I just sort of got disconnected from it. I just sort of stopped going. Uh, things had changed there, kind of walked away. 
um, and, and spent the next several years uh, replacing that part of my life with achieving. I mean, I was a high achiever through middle school and high school. Part of it, I had to be. My dad was a middle school teacher at my middle school, so there wasn't an option of missing a day. So three years of perfect attendance. Um, but also, you know, part of that was I got praised with grades. I could get that what I needed for my parents, for my teachers. Just keep it up, right? Just keep up the appearances, keep going. And it bled right in the high school. Get great grades, show up, lead, do all these things, be involved, achieve, achieve, achieve. And on the outside, everything looked great, right? I was getting all the strokes and all the props that I needed to feel good, all the little pieces of paper. But I remember those nights, I remember in the midst of all of it, laying in my room, listening to The Cure, if any of you remember that, um, and just sad, lost, alone. And I remember looking back in some of my old journals, I've got all these notebooks where I'd like write one page and then put it away and start another one two years later. Um, but all of them were dark. I mean, it was, on the outside, things were great. And on the inside, it was tanking. It was empty and it was lost. And I, I was suffocating and I was not even aware of it. It was masked in success. And it's, again, it's so common to our story of it's here. But God reached in into the mess and pulled me out. He rescued me from the midst of it. And he showed me what real life looks like, what freedom looks like. And it has forever changed my life. I'm here doing this because of that. My life is forever changed because God was willing to reach in, pull me out. I couldn't do it. I didn't even know I had a problem until I was pulled out. And part of it is, is a little painful because when you get rescued, God exposes some of those things that were there. You may not know you're suffocating, but on the other side of it, you're able to have a real look at what it is and to be able to repent, to be able to make up, to be able to, to address some of those things in your life. But it was God's work, right? It was God having to reach in and pull me out before I even was ready or even knew. So I'm gonna ask this question. Uh, do you want to be a child of God? clothed in Christ, with no division between you and your brothers and sisters, to be a full recipient of the covenant God made with Abraham, to be a full heir of God's property, to have the spirit of Jesus in your heart that cries out tenderly, Abba, Father, to no longer be a slave to fear and sin, or do you want to be held in custody, locked up under a guardian, no different than a slave, subject to guardians and trustees, to be a slave to a law that can never give life. And I know when I put those questions next to each other, it seems so obvious, doesn't it? It seems so obvious you would choose the first one of freedom, but if we're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're willing to hold up the mirror for just a second and the look inside, you know that the reality is so much different in our daily lives. We're so quick to go back to the old ways. We're so quick to make something else our God above God. We're so quick to add a layer on top of the freedom to say, I can do it on my own because if I don't have to worry about God doing it, if I can just do it on my own, then I can justify myself. Or maybe it's so quick to go back to the old ways that were killing you, maybe walking back into success for the wrong reasons or walking back into that addiction that you know is killing you, but you can have had a handle on it now. We walk back so quickly into the things that were suffocating us. But here's the hope. God is actually so fond of you that he sent his son so that you can be free. He's so wildly in love with you that each of you can receive 100% shares of property in his inheritance. He's so tenderly waiting for you that he wants the very spirit of his son to live inside of you and allow you to cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, to the God of the universe. And he is willing and ready and wants to reach into your mess 
the areas where you're suffocating and don't even know it, the areas that you know you're suffocating and don't know how to get out and pull you out. I believe if we were to actually live this good news, this hope, this freedom, that we would be the most attractive group of people on the planet. If we were to live those promises of that freedom, of that hope, that when people looked at us, they'd say, what, what is going on with them? I want whatever that is. It's the aroma of life. They would want that so deeply. And that is still the hope that God has for us. He's always wanted his people to be the most attractive group of people on the planet. From the day he set his people aside and made the covenant with Abraham, and gave them the law that could make them a showcase to the world as the most loving, most generous, most welcoming people. But then he also saw the ways that we were gonna twist that law and to make ourselves our own gods, to let the law become an end and not a means to itself. And so he sent his son to give his life and to come back to life, to give us freedom and allow us to be his children and to live as free in our souls as children do on playgrounds. I've had that image in my head this week of when my kids are playing and they don't even know we're watching and the joy, the freedom as they bounce around the playground. And that's, that's how God wants us to live in our souls. The first thing he says to be children of God and children are free. So many of them are free and they get to enjoy the fullness of life and that's what he hopes for us. And that's what you're invited into and who we're called to be as the church and if you've never taken the time to consider him and, and the hope that he has there, my encouragement would be to take as much time as you need, but no more than that. God is ready and willing and he is right there. And all it takes is to ask him to come in and pull you out. And if you've made that decision before, maybe you've forgotten what it feels like to be free. My hope is that today, maybe it sparks a little bit of that joy, a little bit remembering of what that's like. Maybe you've never experienced that in your walk with him. Maybe you've been continuing to live under these old things, but what could be in your life and that God wants for you? Because the hope in it is that you can be truly free and actually live your best life. So I wanna end by praying over us the promises that God has made to us if we follow him, the promises that Paul has written to the church. I wanna pray those over us. And if you're not yet a follower of him, I hope that you would hear these words as an invitation to what he desires for you. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to give, read some of the promises there and give a little space between, but hear these words of how fond God is of you. Let's pray. You are no longer under a guardian because you are in Christ Jesus. You are children of God. You are clothed in Christ. You are no longer divided. You are no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You are full heirs of God's promises. You are adopted to sonship. You are his son.
you have the spirit of Jesus in your hearts, the spirit that calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Amen.